Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. For years, uh, fruit pickers in Australia have um, been vocal about being underpaid and exploited, um, particularly by being paid in what's called piecework rates. That's being paid for the amount of fruit picked rather than being paid an hourly rate like most other workers. Well, this is set to change. Uh, Last week, the Fair Work Commission ruled in favour of the Australian Workers' Union and found that piecework provisions in the Horticultural Award were not fit for purpose. And to tell us more about about this, Daniel Walton from AWU, his National Secretary, he's on the line and it's uh, good to have you there, Daniel, and it sounds like a, a really big win for, for fruit pickers uh, and Fair Work ruled that it's not fit for purpose to use these um, piecework make, um, rates. What what are they and I guess, you know, how is it that fruit, fruit pickers have been paid on some farms to date? Yeah, well, hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. I mean, it's a historic win. We've um, certainly been enjoying and celebrating over the last couple of days as a consequence of the result. Uh, Essentially what it means is for about 60,000 workers in the fruit and veg industry who who are paid on piece rates, uh, that is essentially they get paid an incentive payment per punnet, per crate, per box, whatever it is that they're harvesting, whatever they produce, they essentially weigh it up at the end of the shift and then they would be paid an amount for that. Now, it was always designed as a mechanism for those workers to earn above the minimum, that is the award rate. Um, but unfortunately, for a long period of time, as most people know in the country, fruit pickers have been getting exploited. There's been countless examples of it. And so we took our case to the Fair Work Commission to try and get this fixed up and to get a safety net put in place and thankfully we were successful last week and it improves the lives for so many workers around the country. Yeah, and I mean, obviously that there's still potential for exploitation with workers being not sort of officially on the books and we know there's, um, there's you know, a number of sort of undocumented workers as well where they may, may be much more liable to be exploited because of, of not being properly on the books. To what extent has uh, this kind of peace rate been sort of a factor in the underpayment of workers across the sector? It's a really good question because, I mean, it's uh, unfortunately it's been a very large part. And so when we had a look across all the issues in the industry, uh, sort of wage theft uh, and wage exploitation is one part of a lot of issues that are, that's in this industry. Peace rates were a fundamental part of it. And as I mentioned before, the way it was designed was meant to be an encouragement or incentive. But what some unscrupulous employees found out is, well, in actual fact, you don't need to track the hours that anyone works, and it doesn't actually then guarantee you a minimum wage. And so we've unfortunately had examples popping up around the country where workers are getting paid on average $3 an hour uh, for picking berries, and we've seen countless examples of other produce around the nation where this is happening. And so what we said, well, farmers still want to have incentives in place. They still want to have peace rates. Some of our members still want it, but they want to have a safety net. So if you do a 8, 10, 12-hour shift, at the, at the very minimum, you should at least get paid for those hours' work. If you're more productive... We just lost you there, um, Daniel. Let it umpire ...heard our evidence. They heard all the evidence to the contrary from some of the farming lobby groups, and they came down in favour of um, us and our members, and it was a fantastic victory. 
We lost a little bit of what you said there, but it sounds like um, some workers are keen to, to to still have those incentives in place, but to have that safety net. And, and of, of $25 an hour, I understand it is. And I mean, it's interesting, the messaging coming from the AWU that things will be easier now for workers, particularly those without good English language skills. If you don't get $25 an hour, you're being underpaid. How, how challenging has it been to date for workers to know how much they should be expecting to get paid? It's been incredibly difficult because you've got uh, piece rates essentially changing on a daily basis and also changing on the produce. Uh, depending on the farm, you might be filling up crates, you might be filling up buckets, or you might be filling up other sort of mechanisms of collection. And so it's really hard to be able to go through and adequately work out where people are being paid or not, uh, being paid correctly, I should say. And particularly because the workforce is made up with so many workers from from overseas with um, English skills and understanding of industrial relations laws not being as great, they were easily exploited. Has there been much opposition to this ruling, Daniel? Yeah, unfortunately there has been. um, Like we've had the Minister... Uh, Minister Littleproud running around uh, screaming like a headless chook and we've also seen the National Farmers Federation and others saying that you know the grocery prices, fruit and veg prices about to skyrocket. But at the end of the day, everyone was were meant to be getting paid correctly. I think you pointed out so $25, 41 an hour for a casual worker. That was always meant to be the minimum. Now, unfortunately, that's not played out and we've seen countless examples and all of our evidence point to the fact that people are getting a lot less and what I hope is that we give a bit of confidence back into the industry. So particularly a lot of local workers in rural and regional areas where we've got the highest youth unemployment, to try and give some people some confidence to get back into this industry and know that you'll at least get a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. You know, um, I mean, we, we hear, and I, I've even heard it in the last week, that complaints from farmers that there's, you know, there's gluts and there's real difficulty attracting workers to come and pick what's ready to be picked right now. Could this now change, um, as you indicate, with this hourly rate being there or this minimum um, rate there for workers that farmers might actually find it's the opposite and they might attract more staff? Well, I, I certainly think there's a lot of good farmers that are out there that have been doing the right thing, and like we've been approached by countless numbers of them saying, well, not everyone in the industry is bad, and, and we certainly accept that. It's just that, unfortunately, there's so many dodgy operators who have been cannibalising all the good farmers. And this this change, albeit we've got a little bit of detail to work through with Fair Work on the timing and the implementation of it, but what this will mean is it just makes it really simple for workers to understand that they're going to get this minimum rate of pay. And hopefully that goes a long way to attract workers where they can actually see that regardless of their piecework arrangement, they work like a 12-hour shift or even longer during harvest, um, that they will at least get their 12 hours pay. And I, and I hope that will go a long way for people to say, well, yes, this industry's had some problems in the past, but at least now I've got some certainty on my take-home pay. Speaking with National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, Daniel Walton, all about a Fair Work Commission finding recently that all farm workers um, should be paid minimum wage um, and talking about all what this means for fruit pickers. And there's been an, a number of changes in this space recently. I mean, in Victoria, wage theft is now a crime. That was passed not too long ago. Um, we've also, um, uh, you know, seen uh, recently news that Pacific Island workers are reportedly preparing a, a class 
class action about wage exploitation by labour hire firms. And now we've got this this finding from the Fair Work Commission. Is there a sense that things are kind of starting to be tidied up in this space to make it, you know, to, to stamp out wage theft or at least make it much more difficult to underpay workers? Well, I, I'd certainly hope so. I mean, I, I'd require a happy end if that was if that was the case. I mean, mm. I think that the victory last week alone, frankly, just gives so much hope to you know. I think there's probably about 120 to 130,000 people at peak harvest working in the industry, and a, and a bit over half of them were working on piece rates. So, like in terms of the size of the change, like it's it's monumental. But obviously, there's a lot still to go. There's a lot in terms of enforcement around making sure the conditions are paid. There's also stuff in terms of working arrangements, you know, accommodation standards. There's a whole lot of issues in this industry which we still need to work on and to try and build up. But hopefully everyone's having a look now and saying there is some hope. We've got a good victory. We've got certainty over our pay and you know, this is a really, really positive step in the right direction. Yeah, and not to um, go down the not positive route, but I, I, I guess I'm conscious that the borders are now opening and, um, you know, we, we're, I think the government's speaking about Pacific Island workers being able to return more readily to Australia, also workers from Southeast Asian countries as well on, on different kinds of, of visas. But at the same time, I was reading in The Guardian just this morning that, um, you know, there's government posters up saying that if workers... You know, in inverted commas, abscond. They might not work in Australia again, including their family or community. And it's just a bit of a confusing space at the moment for a lot of of people. Um, I mean, how do you sort of make sense of the kind of different things happening um, in in this in this sector? Yeah. So we've got the Pacific Island. Uh, so we've got two different. Okay. Just... the Pacific Labor Scheme. And both of those have been the bedrock of opportunities for our friends um, in the region to be able to come over and work in our shores, in particular in the horticulture sector and our fruit and veg industry. The government, um, you know, in their infinite wisdom, has decided to try and create a, essentially a cheaper visa, now called the agriculture visa, which is going to spin out into forestry, fishing and meatworks as well, um, to essentially op- uh, offer uh, sort of visa arrangements, bilateral agreements with Southeast Asian non- uh, countries. Now, the concern is for us and for the Pacific Islands nations themselves is they've got this existing arrangement, provides a lot of opportunities for their citizens to come over and work in our shores. Um, it's got some problems. It still needs some improvement, but they're essentially creating this cheaper visa with fewer restrictions, fewer approvals in place to make sure the right employers are bringing over the right workers. And our fear is we're only going to continue this exploitation taking place. It's not that long ago. I think if a few of your listeners will probably remember, Boris Johnson said, well, in actual fact, now we're renegotiating this free trade agreement. Mm. We don't want any of our citizens to come and work on your farms because we've seen what's been happening to them. So they scrapped them having to do the additional 88 days to extend their visa. And we know there's a few other nations, uh, particularly around um, Europe, a few countries in Europe that are having a look at uh, this as well because they've seen what's been happening to their young citizens, in particular, come over backpacking. And they don't want it to continue on. And so the government tried to find a quick fix. And unfortunately, they've designed this agriculture visa and we've got massive concerns that it's just going to open the door for more exploitation.
Yeah, and the, the idea that exploitation is okay for, for one group of people and not another is um, is is pretty alarming and, and not a route we should be going down. Um, so what comes next from from this finding from the Fair Work Commission? I mean, does this sort of is this implemented sort of straight away, or, or, or what happens from here? Uh, so the first step is there's a period of time for the employer groups, so those that oppose our case, to decide whether or not they want to appeal it. Um, I've said uh, publicly on a few occasions now, I think it would be madness to do so because they're essentially standing by the exploitation and the failings that have happened if they do challenge it. The next step, if, assuming they don't, will be to sit down and work out the implementation. So what's the time frames around it? How much notice do we need to give out to the industry for people to start getting prepared um, and getting, obviously, all their back-end systems in place to be able to do it? So that will take a couple of weeks. Uh, but, you know, we're certainly optimistic that hopefully by the end of the year, if not early next year, this will be in place. And, you know, as we start getting back into the full swing harvest for summer fruits and others, that um, everyone will get some extra money in their back pocket and we've reduced some of the exploitation taking place in this industry. And, Fingers crossed, we can give a bit of confidence for uh, some younger workers to get in the fruit and veg industry and give it a shot. Good on you, Daniel. Um, sounds really promising and uh, sounds like the celebrations were very, very um, um, worthwhile and luckily the, the lockdown allowed them to happen. <laughs> the unlockdown. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, AWU National Secretary Daniel Walton speaking there about the historic industrial win for vulnerable fruit pickers uh, and uh, it will now ensure that they are paid a minimum, minimal casual, minimum casual rate of pay. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Journalist Sean Kelly has an acute understanding of how political leaders are framed through the media. As a former press secretary to Prime Ministers Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd, he'd provide advice and work up strategies for how they might appear in public. He's drawn on this expertise and his aptitude for incisive analysis for a new book that takes an up-close look at our current Prime Minister. It's called The Game, a portrait of Scott Morrison, out now through Black Ink, and to talk all about it, joins us on the line. Great to, to have you on Triple R, Sean. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. And there's surprisingly not a great deal written about Scott Morrison, the person. Um, of course, there's a biography by Annika Smethurst that came out recently. And, and you write, though, in this book that many consider him to be quite a boring character. You haven't set out to write a defining biography uh, by any means here. Tell us about the approach you, you took in this book and, and why you took it. I had a really strange intro to this book, which is that when I was first approached to write it, uh, I wasn't that keen. The, a publisher came to me, a publisher I knew, and said, look, would you be interested in writing a biography, potentially? And I thought about it, and I thought, I don't know if I'm interested enough in Scott Morrison to sustain you know, a year of in-depth research and writing, and, and most importantly, thinking about this man. Uh, and then the more I thought about it, the more I realised this was the opening. This was the thing that was oddly interesting. How had this man become Prime Minister and been Prime Minister for a couple of years without us knowing very much at all about him? And why weren't more of us interested in in him? Why weren't more of us interested to know what made him tick? And the more I dwelled on this, the more I realised it was a kind of conjuring trick, this 
this way that he'd rendered himself quite a boring character was a, a very important political tactic, a very important part of his political strategy. So uh, I, I set off from there, really, and I, I realised... And, and one of the fascinating things that happened in the writing of this book is that when I started, other people agreed with me. Other people thought Scott Morrison was boring. People would often say, oh, oh you've started writing that book. That sounds... How, how are you spending all that time with this man? But by the end... By, by this point, when it's come out, I've found that people's attitudes have shifted. People are actually quite uh, fascinated by Scott Morrison now. They, they don't quite understand him. They've seen him succeed wildly at, at certain times and fail miserably at others. And they can see that he's this enigmatic character. Uh, and so I'm very glad that what happened to me in the writing of this book has, has happened publicly as well. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you had that response because I had a similar response when I was carrying your book around with me for the last week or so that people were saying they felt sorry for me reading it. Um, And it's interesting that, um, but that said, look, I really enjoyed your portrait of of Scott Morrison. And I mean, someone else said to me, actually, they said, oh, you know, the Prime Minister's like that guy, Stephen Bradbury, the ice skater who won a medal because everyone else fell over. And I I just, I mean, speak to that because that's kind of not how Scott Morrison became Prime Minister. It's not because everyone, you know, we had that kind of succession of Prime Ministers. It's not because they all fell over. There's a lot more to it than that um, in what in what you discover as you write this book. Mm. How did he become Absolutely. Prime Minister? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I guess there are, there are a few different answers to that. One is that, uh, that Scott Morrison's career can be divided into two parts, really. There's the period up to 2015 where he keeps himself a blank slate and he very deliberately avoids filling in the outlines Uh, and people know nothing about Scott Morrison. He doesn't answer questions. He finds ways of avoiding questions. He doesn't talk about himself at all. Nobody knows what he believes because he never sticks to any position. And then uh, about 2015, there's the first glimmer of the sense that he might actually have a shot at becoming Prime Minister. And he obviously realises he has this problem that mostly is a blank slate, but it, that started to be filled by this idea that he's a hardline, quite cruel immigration minister. So he needs to shift that image. And you suddenly see him create this flat character, this very simple character, this guy who likes rugby league. He likes to cook, but only once a week, so he's modern, but not too modern. Uh, and... Uh, he loves his family, and that's pretty much all anybody knows about Scott Morrison. He's not, he's not this round, nuanced person. He's really just an image. And so I think that's a very important part of the way that he became prime minister and an important part of the way he managed to stay prime minister in winning, winning that 2019 election because you had this simple, quite acceptable character to many people up against Bill Shorten, who seemed a bit more complex, uh, potentially suspicious to lots of people. And then the the other element, of course, uh, he's incredibly good at keeping his hands clean in political battles. Uh, So he fights these internal contests. He comes out the other end victorious, uh, as though he has completely clean hands. But actually, it seems very much like he's been quite active all along in putting the numbers together to make sure that he comes out on top. And you see this repeatedly in Scott Morrison's career, because this is what he often does. He learns a trick, then he repeats it. In the three most important political battles of his life, the pre-selection for the Liberal Party, uh, for defeating Tony Abbott, making Malcolm Turnbull Prime Minister, which allows him to become Treasurer, and then for rolling Malcolm Turnbull and he becomes Prime Minister. Uh, He says he had nothing to do 
with any of those three contests. Completely clean hands. Now, that is an incredibly strange coincidence, or maybe he had something to do with each of them. Yeah, and you trace how this suggestion that he's not really responsible for anything and not even responsible for his own success is actually there in some of the interviews he's done sort of, you know, prior to becoming Prime Minister and since then and and the image he's put forth on um, programs like, you know, Annabelle Crabbe's Kitchen Cabinet, which is is something that she got quite criticised for, for, um, uh, you know, humanising Scott Morrison. Um, I wonder if you can speak to to that and, and how journalists, I suppose, have approached writing about Scott Morrison, given that he has generally eluded close scrutiny, despite being in the public eye for a long time and holding prominent portfolios such as, um, you know, immigration and treasury as well? Well, one of the things that I think Scott Morrison understood, though I don't think he'd ever put it in these terms, but he understood that in creating a flat character, if he was that character, somebody else needed to write this story. And somebody else, in effect, had to be the novelist Uh, writing the book of Scott Morrison. And of course, uh, the authors of that book are going to be journalists. They're going to be all of those people telling the rest of his stories through news bulletins, through articles in the newspaper. Uh, And he understood that that journalists, while they, in effect, they're writing the book of Scott Morrison, they're pretty simplistic novelists. You know, they've got 800 words, they've got 1,000 words most of the time, maybe two minutes on a TV news bulletin, which means they're going to tell very simple stories. And that's a very large part of why he uh, kept his image very simple and kept the stories that he told the Australian public very simple. Now, I think we do have to ask questions there about journalists' role in transmitting a, uh, an image, uh, a message from politicians very cleanly. Because what's happened over a period of about five decades since television started to uh, be a massive part of the political landscape is that politicians have become better and better performers. They've become more and more skilled at the art of performative politics. In 1968, you have Roger Ailes working on Richard Nixon's campaign. Television is becoming a big part of politics. And he says, this is the future. From now on, politicians are going to be performers. And that is exactly what happens. And the more skilled that politicians have become at performing, I think the greater responsibility uh, should fall on journalists to interrogate that image. But I think often instead, journalism is caught in an old model in which you simply repeat what politicians say, uh, and that is presented fairly, um, uh, fairly transparently. And the public are left to decide whether or not uh, what they're being presented with is is just a performance. Now, the public have become savvier and savvier as well. But I I do think that journalists have a greater responsibility than is sometimes acknowledged in interrogating and questioning what is put in front of them and perhaps choosing not to present it exactly as a politician wants it to be presented. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it, you sort of write that it was a, a jolt for you, Sean. I should say we're speaking with Sean Kelly. He's a journalist and also um, author of A Portrait of Scott Morrison. It's called The Game and it's out now via uh, Black Ink. And um, when it was a bit of a jolt for you to, to realise this kind of idea of a flat character of, of Scott Morrison being, you know, his football team, what he likes to cook. And, and I think the other one is sort of, you know, pragmatic that he says, I'm, you know, I get things done. I'm a fixer. These sorts of repetitive messages mm. that we get. But there was another jolt that you speak about, which I found really interesting. And I mean, he, he, Scott Morrison is a man of faith and it's something that he, he seems to speak 
less of um, these days compared to what he did. But um, there was a an anthropologist that you that you read that made you realise that Scott Morrison might be believing his own act. And you're talking there about you know politicians and and being performative, but the idea that you can just be in the moment and really believe what you're saying in that moment, even if it's inconsistent with what you might have said before or what you might do tomorrow. Um, talk to that a little bit about uh, your observations about Scott Morrison. Yeah, the, the journalist Catherine Murphy tells this fascinating story about Nick Xenophon, a senator, and uh, Xenophon comes into contact with Morrison. He negotiates with him. They have a pretty good relationship. And then a little while later, he bumps into Morrison in Parliament House and says, oh, Scott, should we have coffee? And Morrison says what for? And Xenophon says, well, you know, I thought we had a good relationship, we'd be good to discuss some, some policy issues. And Morrison laughs and says, no, mate, I'm, I'm purely transactional. And what I think is fascinating there is that at one point he's completely nice to, Morris, to Xenophon and then the next moment he's like, no, that, that past moment vanishes. It doesn't matter at all. And that sense of Scott Morrison being only in the moment is really consistent across his career. So he'll, he'll often say that uh, he hasn't said something, that everybody knows he's said, that there's, there's lots of camera footage of him saying a particular thing. Or he'll say he hasn't done something that he's obviously said. Now, all politicians uh, tell lies at times, uh, but... It seems something particular in Scott Morrison where he can kind of forget about the past and forget about the future and just grasp the moment and say and do whatever he thinks needs to be done in that moment. And by needs to be done, I mean politically needs to be done. And uh, the, the religious aspect is, is complex. There's this anthropologist called T.M. Lohman who spent a lot of time with uh, evangelical religious communities in America and not, a, not in a sceptical way. Uh, she... Uh, would not describe herself as an evangelical Christian, but certainly had a lot of sympathy and made a lot of friends in those communities. And along with some other anthropologists, uh, theorised that when you are treating God as a friend, as somebody who is present at all times, almost as though somebody, um, you, you would ask them what to wear in the morning, what you should have for breakfast in the morning, uh, that you, you are in a sense existing in two frames at any one time. You're existing in a in reality frame, if you like, where you have to walk the dog, you have to pay your, your bills, and you're existing in this spiritual frame at all times. Uh, and I, I sometimes think that you can see that element in Scott Morrison where he, on one hand, he kind of knows what reality is and, and what the, the truth around him is, but he also knows what this moment demand. So he, he is accustomed to existing in two frames of reality at once. Yeah, and, and those realities can clash. I mean, we've seen that most recently with, uh, you know, what's happened, um, the, the G20 and, and Macron's comments to, to Australian journalists about being lied to by Scott Morrison and, and essentially in the aftermath, Scott Morrison just, you know, sort of denied that he lied and there's been, um, you know, leaks um, of text messages between the two as well, which is pretty unedifying. But there's also been, there's, there's a history to this as well, and you uh, write about the, his trip to Hawaii during the bushfires in 
2020. And then, of course, when he came back and there are those images, footage of him going to Cabago and, you know, almost forcing people to shake hands with him and them just screaming at him and being, you know, so angry about his apparent lack of, mm. of responsibility um, and, and uh, you know, not looking after those people and sort of being there for them at, at the time. So it feels like there's been, uh, you know, very public times where uh, his, his word has been questioned and where he seemed to be very hypocritical. Does that matter? I mean, do you think the public has sort of over the past few years seen, for want of a better term, the real Scott Morrison and, and understands the extent to which he does shirk responsibility and, and lie? Look, this is one of the things I try to get to groups with in my book, how much people actually respond to these problems in politics, how much they actually become sceptical of politicians when they make mistakes. And I, I do think that Scott Morrison's character, that the flat character he presented at the 2019 election that was so effective for him then, has worn thin a little over the, the last few years. Uh, there is a sense that people are seeing some other man behind the curtain, if you like, uh, this this more volatile man, perhaps, or a prouder man who uh, hates it when his ego is, is under attack and, and really lashes back. Uh, and I think that is becoming a problem for him. But he is also a master at selling a particular message, and that message is we are all okay, Australia is great, Australia is great as it is, and it can remain the way it is now forever after into the future and that message is a tremendously soothing message and so one of the things I ask in the book is what does Scott Morrison's success with that message say about our country what elements of complacency does it point to and I think at the next election this will be a really significant question whether Australians after the turmoil of, of COVID of the last few years want uh, want that soothing message they might be very receptive to it. Or whether something about COVID and the bushfires and climate change wake people up and make them, uh, make them want something quite different, make them want some element of change because they believe that Australia needs to move to a different footing. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the last election gave us ScoMo. And I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like, did people used to call Scott Morrison ScoMo when he was, was growing up? Or I remember this um, press conference when with Michael McCormack, I think it was, and he was called Mick Mac or Big Mac or something. And then all of a sudden it was ScoMo and it seemed all a bit aw- awkward to me. Mm-hmm. But is is that concocted or, you know, will he be ScoMo going into the next election? And I, I'm not trying to say this to tease. It's just, is this, is ScoMo a sort of a character or is it, or is it in something that he'll take forward or is it a sort of a, a nickname for the times and, and, and we're going to see yeah. someone very different? No, I, I think, um, I think it's going to stick. I think that it, it is concocted. I don't know who came up with the nickname originally, but certainly you start to see it uh, suddenly appear in lots of Scott Morrison's public communications around 2014, 2015. Uh, he starts to talk about it on TV. Uh, he starts to use it on websites, on government websites. He becomes ScoMo, uh, which is you know a very particular contrived choice to make. Uh, and... I do think that he will carry that into the future because I think he sees that as crucial to his appeal because essentially uh, Scott Morrison is offering us two things. He's offering us ScoMo, the character, the proud Aussie, and he's offering us the idea that Australia is great and we can all be proud of the 
the way the country is. And those two things match each other perfectly. Uh, he is presenting uh, an ordinary Australian, proud of who he is, as the model for who we should all be. What do you think, Sean, that, that Scott Morrison's rise and the, the cultivation of this character of ScoMo and, and your successful cultivation, if we take the, the 2019 election as, as you know, being a success, um, what does that reveal about us, the Australian public, it being at least in some way endorsing Scott Morrison as the leader of the government? I, I think it feel a streak of complacency in the Australian psyche. And, uh, you know, I'm not the first person to note that. Uh, I think that, you know, Australia is a rich country. It is a peaceful country. It has an incredible health system. And together those elements mean that for many Australians, this is uh, a very easy place to live. But I think we make a mistake, and I think Scott Morrison makes a mistake, if we assume that that is true of everyone. Not everybody's life in this country is easy. Uh, and there are, there are people, of course, outside this country, like refugees, uh, who we tend to, um, uh, to wall off. We tend to try very hard not to think about them. So I think there is a, a bit of a trick happening when we pretend that all Australians are living an easy, beautiful life because it, it makes us believe that we don't have to think about politics, that politics doesn't matter, that politics is a game. And it's not. Politics is this incredibly serious thing with real consequences. And what I think is really interesting about the last few years is that Australians have really woken up, I think, been quite um, uh, inspired to think about politics at moments of great crisis, during the vaccines mess, during the bushfires, and when the issue of sexual violence became a massive public issue last year. And together, those three elements uh, have been very difficult for Scott Morrison because when a crisis occurs, a crisis involving physical harm, it makes it clear to all of us that politics is not a game. And those are the times at which Scott Morrison has struggled because he's very accustomed to treating politics as a game. And suddenly at those moments, all of us see politics in a new way. But most of the time, we don't. Most of the time, most Australians like to forget about politics. And that's something that Scott Morrison counts on. We'll see what happens. We will have that election between now and, and May sometime. And uh, your book is really insightful. I very much enjoyed reading it. And I hope people don't have the reaction to it that, that they did when I was carrying mine around, that they actually <laughs> grab a copy of it because you can get it in a bookstore near you. And um, Sean Kelly, thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks for reading it. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Sean Kelly there, journalist, uh, author of The Game, a portrait of Scott Morrison. It's quite literary, actually, out through black ink. It is. It's an enjoyable read, isn't it? Yeah. Look at us. We're compensating for the face on the cover of it. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and good on him for taking it on, I reckon. Triple. And I was doing some reading on this um, Facebook rebrand as Meta thing, and um, I think it was the New Yorker pointed out that Facebook has come under so much scrutiny in recent weeks, months, and years. It's got to the point where Facebook doesn't even want to be Facebook anymore. <laughs> yes, they are now Meta, and we have the Metaverse, which the country says, and I quote, is the evolution of social technology. So what does it all mean? We've asked Samantha Floriani, Program Leader at Digital Rights Watch, to try and explain to us. And it's really great to have you on the phone, Sam. Thanks for being there. Hi. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me. And I really appreciate you opening this being like, we don't want to add too much to the hype. Um, I can definitely relate to that <laughs> feeling, but it is like an interesting thing to dive into a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is because it all of a sudden, you know, I learn about a science fiction author called Neil Stevenson who coined the term metaverse and there's all these references and pop culture references and everything coming out. But ultimately, we're looking at... Um, what's been called social technology. And again, it's not new. Uh, Facebook slash Meta didn't invent it. But kind of let us know what this um, evolution is that that Facebook is or Meta is um, trying to lead us into. Yeah, so essentially it's when we think about the Metaverse, I think an easy way to think about it is kind of like immersive virtual worlds. Um, and so this is something that has been kind of on the table um, in the crypto community for a long time. You know, uh, there's these ideas of sort of like decentralized virtual worlds where you can interact online. And so, um, you know, looking at things like, and you know, don't not everyone roll your eyes at once, but things like blockchain and NFTs and cryptocurrency, um, all of those things kind of feed into what could be yeah, the future of the internet where we interact in a more sort of immersive virtual world, you know, buying and selling things and playing games and meeting and, and whatnot, um, which is, yeah, as you said, uh, sort of Mark Zuckerberg is, is staking a bit of a claim in this internet, the future of the internet. And I think that is why it's more interesting, more than just, you know, Facebook doing its next thing when with them like rebranding or you know essentially restructuring so they've got meta as a sort of parent company and then all of their uh subsidiary apps will remain kind of the same it kind of just sends a signal that they are really really interested in being a key player in the future of the internet which for some is really alarming (laughs) Yeah, and I've got to say, I watched an abridged version of, of his announcement. I didn't stick around for the full was it hour and 17 minutes or whatever, however long it went for. But I don't know, maybe I'm not the right audience for this, but the way that the, the metaverse was depicted didn't make me want to rush into it. And, and maybe that's because yeah. we've spent, you know, 20 months or so online and, and finding out the, the real drawbacks of not actually engaging with real people, um, you know, as they are, rather than engaging with them through a computer screen or, you know, goggles or whatever that might look like into the future. So I wonder if it actually is all that appealing and, and, and you know, whether, um, you know, what you're reading is of how the public would have taken to the version of the metaverse that was put out by Facebook. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Like watching, watching the kind of like promo video, I was astounded by how mundane and boring it looked. Mm. Like you have like infinite possibilities to create cool, interesting world. Like, you could you could take a lot or borrow a lot from kind of um, online gaming uh, experiences and things like that. And we're going to pour all of that innovation into virtual meeting rooms? Like, that sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but so I, and I agree. I think with the, with the timing as well, like, given that we've all been... Well, a lot of us have been working from home. It's yeah, it's just it's not particularly exciting to I think a lot of people the idea of, of more of that 
um, and more plugging into into um, you know the computer rather than getting out and seeing people in real life. So I think that I think you're spot on. I um, one of my favourite headlines that I saw uh, last week was from a Vice article, and they said Zuckerberg announces fantasy world where Facebook is not a horrible company. <laughs> and I just thought that that really like summed up the kind of the feeling about it. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, the way you put it is the the future of the internet sounds a lot more exciting. And I guess if we push Meta to the side a bit, Facebook to the side a bit, and just have a look at what that future might be, um, is it more exciting in in your version, Sam, than than Mark Zuckerberg's? Like (laughs) what what the evolution of the internet might be for, for all of us? I mean, I think so. I think it's a, an exciting thing. It can also be a bit of a daunting, scary thing, depending on how it goes. So, like, sort of cliff notes of, of what we're talking about. At the moment, we're operating largely in, um, allow me to get nerdy here, Web 2.0, which is um, essentially, you know, based on things like mobile internet access so that we're always connected, social networking sites and the cloud, which sort of drastically shifted the games in terms of, um, you know, being able to maintain and buy expensive, like, internet infrastructure. So that's kind of where we're at the moment. And Facebook, obviously, you know, being a social networking site was sort of a key um, part of that at the beginning of Web 2.0. And then what we're looking toward at sort of Web 3, which is the next iteration, is is more focused on things like decentralization and artificial intelligence and these, you know, yeah, sort of immersive virtual reality, augmented reality kind of um, uh, innovations. So that that's pretty cool i guess it's it's interesting um but it will depend on how it's implemented i think so one of the things that stood out to me when um listening to mark zuckerberg in his presentation was that he was he said i believe technology can make our lives better um the future will be built by those willing to stand up and say this is the future we want and I don't think he meant for that to sound ominous and threatening, but um, given Facebook's track record, the idea, for me at least, and for you know anyone who's concerned about Facebook, especially under their recent sort of Facebook papers, um, which has shown all kinds of very concerning issues, um, the idea of Facebook essentially determining how these new toxins technologies are um, developed and and how they become mainstream because Facebook has shown in the past it's quite good at at, at getting people onto their platform. Um, so, you know, if we let people like Mark Zuckerberg kind of dictate the future of, um, of where these technologies go, I think that that is cause for concern. Of course, we shouldn't, um, you know, be too distracted from what the, you know, the current issues are. Facebook has a lot to answer for in terms of um, the harm that it has caused. But I think, you know, him saying that the future will be built by those willing to stand up and say this is the future we want, well, we really need people who are interested in, you know, human rights, privacy, pushing back against, you know, rampant surveillance and misinformation and, and things like that to 
participate in, in how this technology develops. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, it will be a real dystopian future, I think. Yeah, Sam Floriani is our guest program lead at Digital Rights Watch, talking about Facebook's metaverse announcement and sort of broader rebranding and, and what the future of social technology and, and the internet might look like as well. And um, something else that stood out to me in, in that video was Zuckerberg mentioning privacy in the metaverse and this idea that you don't necessarily have to be socialising with others virtually all the time. You can retreat into your own little bubble. I thought that was kind of an interesting take on privacy given what we've, we've mm. heard about Facebook sort of data harvesting and all those kinds of issues. And I suppose more broadly looking at, at the future of these kinds of technologies, we've seen uh, you know, legislation really struggling to catch up with how um, the public uses media these days and, and catching up with the nature of you know, data harvesting and advertising and all those sorts of things and, you know, online radicalisation as well. Do you think that we need to be much more sort of on the front foot with regulating what this future might look like to to make sure that it doesn't have really deleterious consequences for us as a society? (laughs) Yeah, huge huge question. Good good points all around, I think. Um, (laughs) Ideally, yes. Uh, You know, we would be able to be a bit more on the ball with the legislation for for emerging technologies. The trouble is that it just moves so quickly and our politicians have demonstrated time and time again that they are often out of touch. They don't really, you know, understand how the tech works, let alone how people use it. Um, So I think we need to be really careful in the sense that, well, yes, I think we need desperately need, you know, really robust fit for purpose legislation that does, you know, really centre on the, you know, upholding human rights in digital spaces. Um, the trouble is if we get the balance wrong, then it can make things even worse. So, you know, the Australian government in particular hasn't doesn't have a great track record um, with like they're obviously trying very hard to step in and regulate big tech. It's something that the the current government is, you know, very clearly wanting to take a strong stance on. But what we've seen at the moment, the trouble is, is that that, that balance is slowly off, and then the risk is that it will exacerbate. Uh, harms for, you know, vulnerable and marginalised groups online. And so that's, you know, it's it's we it's kind of a, a bit of a push and pull. We definitely need more regulation, but we need it to be, mm. you know, good. Yeah. yeah good regulation. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> and I was going to ask you also about good decentralisation because I think, you know, we have, as you say, big tech. We've got really dominant players we, with Google slash Alphabet, Facebook slash Meta now, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, like we've got really, really big players in in tech. Um, Will this kind of Web 3 or Web 3.0 give us a chance, do you think, to to start to have more diversity in the kinds of platforms and the kind of players that are going to be dominant in in the future of the internet, do you think, Sam? Oh, I mean, that would be a great outcome. It's certainly something that the people people in this, like the crypto community definitely, um, you know, seem to to want. Um, there seems to be this yeah, desire for a much more decentralised approach, and you know, people being able to, um, you know, build their own things and connect in different ways that aren't dictated by these massive, you know, tech monopolies. So, it kind of remains to be seen. Um, and I think that the next. 
10 years or so will be really interesting to see how that plays out. The other, one other thing that I would highlight is that, you know, this whole idea of, like, there's this real sense of building and, like, settling and colonising digital world, um, which is kind of wrapped up in all, in all of this. And I think that it's worth thinking about that kind of um, approach where we're kind of just keeping this very, like, extractivism, sort of colonial approach um, that Western societies have taken in the physical world and then pouring it into the virtual world and I think that that is super problematic and sets us up really to to be creating you know potentially the same kind of problems that we have in our life. Yeah absolutely it's um it's been so great having your insights um this morning Sam uh thanks so much hope to have you on the show uh again sometime really soon. Oh, thanks for having me. It's lovely to have some morning nerdy chat. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> Sam Floriani there, Program Lead of Digital Rights Watch, talking about Facebook's Metaverse, um, the recent announcement from the company that they would be rebranding and what the future of social technology and the internet might look like as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.